This is Paula Schmidt, and welcome to my theater of the mind, Evening's Kingdom. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on your preferred podcast platform and share the show with a friend. Your support really helps, and it means so much to me. This is an epic quest through an ancient, magical kingdom as Uma, a reluctant young shaman, seeks her revenge against the king who killed her family. But, guided by otherworldly allies and unlikely friends, Uma unlocks a whole new world. Evening's Kingdom, written and read by Paula Schmidt. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you so much for listening. Coming to you today from my dear friend Christie's coat closet in gorgeous downtown Denver, Colorado, we continue. Chapter 62, Tulu. The man's party was just over the rise. A group of Yang farmers with three bound captives in front of their yurt. One man crouched, cleaning their pots with sand while the woman checked on the bonds of their prisoners. With a respectful familiarity, Tolu noticed. One of the captives was bandaged around his head and gagged so tightly his tongue was visible, even in the dark. He stared straight ahead as if he'd not seen them. But Tolu saw the man's eyes glint in the dark as he registered their silent approach. Then Tolu strode into their camp abruptly, without any warning, and Ogodai's nephews threw the enemy Yang scout down on his knees before them. You've kidnapped these men, Tolu said loudly. Or are you taking them to the king for trial? The farmers rippled back, looking away fearfully from Tolu towards a woman with long, ashy plates and a queen's stature. She waved her hand dismissively at their captives. These men pretended to be our allies. As they stole our winter's cash and attempted to turn my daughter's heart against her husband and myself. To attempt to come between a mother and daughter, they cannot be trusted. The gagged man stared straight ahead and still did not look at Tolu. If we release them, the young woman said, they will hurt us, so they must die. And you are executioners, are you not? Tolu shook his head. You come to us in the dark and want us to execute living beings purely on your say-so. Wash your own hands in their blood, if you must. Tolu turned away. Put your house in order, and if there be a bow on my head, my people will tear out a heart in vengeance for every hair on my head. Tolu heard bows ease downward. He turned his back. And walked away. <sighs> Keep your mouths wet. Chapter 63 Fern Fern was thinking about Tolu's story, about the leaf and the girl. If it were up to her, she'd just have milk for dinner every night and sit up by the fire, weaving and dreaming down stories from the sky until she felt called to bed. But no, her parents always insisted on having a big dinner, everyone all sitting down together. She kicked over a rock, unrooting grubs underneath it with satisfaction. 
there would probably be salt root nearby, and Ogo loved nothing more than crisped grubs. Fern remembered this and smiled, but then was almost instantly annoyed with herself. She was tired of caring about what other people wanted. She didn't want to care, but she tore up a fistful of salt root anyway. And as she stood again, she realized the swell of soil before her was hollow. It was, in fact, a hole in the world. It yawned out from within a crumbly black rock face craggy with grass and lark beds. Fern gasped, a cave. And then, the most wonderful thing of all, a tiny red catkin stood mewling piteously before it in the grass. It had stiff, gangling legs and a quavering tail. Within a year, it would be an apex predator. But at this moment, it was the softest, sweetest, fluffiest little thing she'd ever touch. So new was it in the world that a soft gloss shone under the moonlight on its red fur. Hello there, little one, Fern said knowing how once a baby catling appeared to Uma out of the great waters. Perhaps the tide was finally beginning to change for Fern, too. She cuddled it, and though it went on mewling, the catkin clung to her chest, butting its head against her chin. Are you lost? Fern said. It was half as long as her arm, and warm. It put its furry, delicate little arms around either side of her neck, and she hugged it back. Please be lost, Fern whispered. I'll take care of you. But then something made her freeze. The tiny catkin's cries became faster, higher. She realized a bell-like silence was frozen around them. And the sky held its breath. Five sets of full moon eyes stared at her through the tall grass. Chapter 64 Siege. As Tolu and the nephews returned over the rise, they heard Fern scream and bolted instantly around towards the sound. Uma, who was currying down the lopes with Arayaku, dropped her brush and leapt up onto Silvern. Lalora rushed out too, but Ogadai caught her arm. Stay here, he said. The boys, grab the boys. You grab the boys, Lalora said, bursting past him. But it was too late. Yang archers were thundering over the rise, their bows strung with fire. Chapter 65 Fern The catlings stalked in close with their eyes intent on Fern, and their thin, rangy bodies low to the ground. It was hard to see their outlines in the dark, but she knew they were big. She held their red baby catkin tightly, and then, as growling filled the air, she saw the biggest catling was red too. Slowly, Slowly, Fern held their baby out to them. She knew not to crouch. Crouching triggered their prey response. Uma had taught her never to crouch near Silvern. Whenever Silvern was not with Uma, he was always fastened to the far side of Uma's wagon, so he could not see the cheerclothes sitting at their nightfire. The catkin mewed and twisted towards its mother. Fern opened her hands and let it fall softly towards the ground. In a burst of air and dust, the red catling exploded past her, catching her baby up in her teeth, and disappeared with it into their cave. The others slunk closer, 
snarling hungrily. They were scrawny and fierce, their short, raggedy coats full of dust, starving. Then Silvern came sliding down the rise, his scream sending the other catlings flattening into the ground with their ears pinned back. Uma clung, warlike, to his back as the desert catlings whirled on him as one, all of them except the red catlings' mate, who surged for fern. She saw it leap as if in slow motion, the creature's powerful hind legs silhouetted against the sky. To fern, he seemed frozen midair, those eyes unreadably brilliant. The fangs snarled to their full length. It all happened simultaneously. The huge catling fell out of the sky, blood pouring from his face as it relaxed into death, Tolu stepping out behind him, the other catlings howling past Silvern out into the dark as Fern turned, without thinking, towards the cave. Tolu and Uma cried out, Fern, don't! And the red catling burst out. Chapter 66 Ogodai Full dark, and their camp was burning. Chiriklo came screaming out from their wagons, their children underfoot, as fire scorched the air. Ogodai shot one of the Yang farmers off his lope and then another. He stalked out, found them dying in the night grass, and crushed their necks with his boot as he ripped his arrows out of their flesh and shot their lopes down as they ran, in case a Yang clung hidden to one side. He watched as the last farmer turned back and began to run. Then something surged up out of the grass, knocking the last Yang woman down from her lope. The scream, when it came, was blood-curdling and short, as the prairie grass runnled with vanishing darknesses, all streaking straight towards him. Wild catlings, one whipped right past him, straight for camp. Ogodai turned. Lilora! His wife was holding low and Kizzy in her arms, reaching out to grab little Ogo up too. Ogodai ran. Lungs bursting into his throat, he ran faster than he could ever have dreamed his old body was capable of moving. But the black blur of Catling exploded, and his family rolled from sight. Chapter 67 The cinders of the burnt-out wagons made unrecognizable shapes in the dark as Tolu and his party returned. Fern was with Uma atop Silvern, hugging Uma tightly, shaking. Every hair on Uma's great white catling's body stood on end beneath them, an energy they could feel in their bodies as if it were the charge from a lightning storm. In camp, they found the body of a huge black catling beneath Ogodai and Lelora's wagon, Spellwalker. It was staked through one eye to the ground, liquid dark rivering beneath it into the ashes. Lelora and Ogodai sat crouched together with their three sons by the fire. Their smallest... Ogo lay motionless in Lelora's arms. Ogodai was silent. Lelora wept. Shenandoah walked alone, hollow-eyed, from one wagon to the next, searching out the wounded, beating dust over anything that still burned. Uma stroked Fern's hair, saying nothing. That night, Fern slept in onelings with Uma, her parents hadn't spoken to her, nor she to them. Rather, Fern did not sleep but lay awake, staring up at the painted ceiling. Uma, are you awake? She said. No, Uma said. 
The babies, Vern said. The catkins. Their parents are dead now. They're still alone in their cave. Uma wrestled onto her side and looked down at Fern, who lay on the floor atop a pile of furs. The younger girl's eyes were huge and haunted in the dark. Something will hurt them, Fern said. Or they'll get lost, going out to look for their parents. They'll be hungry and scared. Uma sighed and sat up. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bother you. I just can't sleep, Fern said, as Uma rose. What are you doing? Uma was putting on her cloak. What do you mean, what am I doing? We're rescuing your catkins. They mounted Silvern quietly in the dark and headed out. Silvern moves differently at night, Fern said. The world is different at night, Uma said. He can smell and hear more than we can. Do you think he's ever scared? Fern said. I think he's just paying attention, Uma paused. You know, not many people can ride a catling. They frighten most people, Fern tried to laugh. <laughs> but Ariaku can. He's crazy, of course. When we call someone crazy, Uma said, we're just putting them into a little box in our minds so we don't have to do the work of trying to understand them instead. Ariaku is not crazy. He's skilled. Fern sank. I didn't mean... What I mean is, Uma said, you have to move with a catling. You're doing a good job. She put her hand on Fern's shoulder. Now, try curving the bottom of your spine. Just a little bit. Fern did, and Silvern came to a stop. Good, Uma said. Now, straighten up again. Fern did, and Silvern started forward. The younger girl smiled sadly. He listens, she said. Uma nodded. You can guide him where you want to go with your hip bones. See? Very good. Fern's mouth twisted. It's like I'm the rudder. It's strange to feel happy when I'm so sad. Uma hugged her. No person is ever just one thing. Remember that. Do you think my parents know that? Fern said, quietly. Uma rested her head against Fern's. If we wait until we aren't sad to ever let ourselves feel happy, We'd never be happy. Maybe life is just about learning how to hold many simultaneous truths at once. How to hold them all with grace. The enormity of the stars above them felt crushing to Fern. And tears started to her eyes. I can't even imagine. Uma smoothed Fern's hair back over her shoulders, feeling her friend shake with a silent, fierce sob. Ah, it's okay. It's just something people keep trying to tell me. I don't know how either. But you're a better person than me, Uma thought to herself. You can carry Ogo in your heart and let him rest. I cannot let my people rest. I will not let them sleep. And I will not let myself feel. Not until the king is dead by my hand. Dead. And then, then they can rest. And I can live. She felt Fern stiffen and forced herself to calm. The cave of Catlings was silent as they drew close to it. Fern's heart sank, and then began to beat fast when she saw the dead catling lying outside the mouth of the cave. Suppose it wasn't truly dead. But Silvern only snorted at the dead catling, and then, at the sound of his snuffling, the orphaned catkins came tumbling towards them, mewling piteously. Fern jumped down. Oh, she said, 
scooping them up. The soft, clumsy, warm bodies. She wept, holding them close. If not for me, they'd still have their parents. I'd still have my brother. If it wasn't for you, Uma said, maybe they would have killed all of us. The adults could have already been stalking our camp, Fern. They were starving. Fern shook her head. I don't think that's true, she said. But you don't know it isn't true, Uma said. Come on. Uma helped Fern back up onto Silvern, along with the squealing catkins. Keep talking to me, please, Fern said. Please don't stop talking. I don't want to think. And I, I can't stop thinking. Talk about what, Uma said. Anything, Fern said. A story. Please tell me a story. The wind lifted, and the grasses rose and sighed around them. Once, Uma said, in the very first of times, there was a girl whose mother was sick. She was dying. The girl tried to help, but her mother only grew weaker. Her mother's heartbeat began to fade until the sound was like the lightest tap, tap, tap of a faraway branch. And it hurt the girl's mother to breathe. Every breath hurt her, as if she were trying to breathe salt water. The girl knew how it hurt, but she had healed people before. She was a vampire. She was possessed of magic. And the girl believed that if her mother could just hold on a little while longer, she could heal her too. But magic is an instrument of fate, just like anything else. It was her mother's time to die. And so, when the girl bit her mother, the mother saw her fate. I'm dying, she said. Let me die. And she did. The girl grieved. To her, her mother was everything good in the world. She did not want to live or to even be happy without her mother alive beside her. As time passed, the girl became so sad she threw her heart away right out into the ocean. Take it, she said to the waters. I never want to care about anyone again. And the ocean accepted her heart. It took it far away. The ocean held the girl's heart and washed it in its own, back and forth, back and forth, until time made it strong and clean. Until one day, when the girl was out walking, the ocean threw the heart back to her, the heart was clean, but not empty. It was a book of many pages. Each was a memory, and one of them was this. Don't leave me. Please don't leave me, the girl was saying. I need you with me, Mama. Please stay. Stay here with me. You will always be my baby, the mother said. But now you must be strong. As I said... A heart has many pages. And slowly, with the years, this page of the girl's heart, although it was heavy, began to turn. Is that the end? Fern said. Uma smiled sadly. I think it's the beginning. But the heart wants a quiet place to lean on sometimes, doesn't it? A place to rest. There's something soothing about the idea of endings. Maybe because we hate knowing the world goes on without us. At least as we understand ourselves to be. Because we hate knowing there's no such thing as an ending. 
That's the only part of a fairy tale that isn't true. Uma clicked her tongue. Come on, Silver. Chapter 68 They buried Ogo with his carved wooden catling and rode away, only Lelora looking back. And still Ogodai would not look at Fern. In the next town, Uma walked alongside the younger girl, deeply hidden within the hood of her cloak. And side by side, they sold every wild catkin. Fern moved permanently into onelings with Uma, and the caravan moved on. Chapter 69 Nor Nor swept into Nezmi's bedchamber and immediately felt the presence of Nezmi all around him. He'd never been in her quarters at night, and the darkness there was blacker still for the woman's sleep and for the beloved scent of Nezmi's fang oil. But his eyesight was fierce and clear with adrenaline. He looked to the inside of her door, and there was Bestel in pieces. The other boy was pressed back against the wall, a large basket at his feet. Bestel's eyes were huge in his callow face. His greasy skin and lank hair seemed wreathed in guilt to Nor. Bestel swallowed hugely, shrinking back into the shadows, one hand reaching into his cloak as he glanced quickly down towards the basket. There it is, Nor thought. Nashmi's death is there. Bestel was quick, but Nor was quicker. Nor slammed into the older boy, smashing him by the throat into the wall so Bestel rattled in Nor's grasp. Bestel dropped his knife, and the basket lurched. I'd pull the eyes out of your head if I could, Nor said quietly into Bestel's ear, lifting the boy off the ground by his throat. He groined him hard, pressing him tightly so Bestel could not do the same to him. I'll gut your brains out. I'll pull them like a wet string right out your nose, Nor said, for having even dreamt of hurting her. Bestel's eyes bulged on Nor's as he twisted and writhed, flailing against the wall. Nor eased his grip and then quickened it again. What's in the basket, Bestel? Hmm? Nor kicked Bestel again, letting him slide down the wall. He knelt beside him slowly and went on choking him. He felt lightheaded and aroused, choking the life and hope and wicked dreams out of Bestel into a thin ghoul that spilled around them onto the floor. It was spit or vomit, Nor couldn't tell, as Bestel began pissing himself, an unholy stench mixed in now with the sweetness of Nezmi. Then, behind them, Nezmi shrieked. Nor turned without letting go of Bestel, and his elation at seeing her alive was not less than his joy in killing Bestel. Nor sat back on his heels, Bestel's slight body before him slack, wet, dead and stinking, a shameful sack for Nezmi's review. She covered her mouth with both her hands. Nor. Her long nightdress was a pale column in the doorway to her bedroom. Nor pulled down an ornamental oar from the wall and used it to gingerly lift a corner of the basket's lid. Whatever was in the basket lunged inside it. Nor dropped the lid closed swiftly and straightened, turning to her. Nezmi stepped back. You murdered him. I would have you never know sadness, my Nezmi, Nor said. But everything loves to be alive. You murdered him. Bestel was here to kill you. I felt... I knew you were in danger, Nezmi. I rode all night to... And when will violence end? She shook her head. Do you think it will end when you're king? It will go on and on and on. Forever. Forever. 
unless we stop it, and you will never stop it, Nor. Suddenly, Nor was exhausted. For Nezmi's arms, for her cool bed, for dreamless sleep. He moved closer, and she did not move away. I would kiss you if you allow it, Nor said in a low voice. Crying silently, Nezmi turned her face up to his and pressed into his chest. It has to stop somewhere, my Nor. Nor held her and kissed her soft hair. Chapter 70 Sometimes the Chiriclo crossed paths with other caravans, and by unspoken agreement they always circled up to spend at least one night fire together. There was always trading, flirting, gossip, and always Ogodai turned the talk towards the original homeland. There is no strength without land, he would say. There is no power without land. You know this. I know this. We cling to our caravans only because we are afraid to fight for what we truly want, my brothers and sisters. But if we unite, if we unite, together we can take back our ancestral land and all that beautiful red sand coast which is rightfully yours and mine and our children's. And what about those who would die fighting that fight, big man? Said a man from the other camp. He spoke thoughtfully and his dark eyes were quiet and watchful. What about them? Ogodai nodded respectfully. We're all gonna die one day, my friend. Why not in service to our people? To our children? To our children's children? But I have everything I need on the road, the man said quietly. I have my sunrise over there, between the mountains right where I want it. I have my woman. I have my friends safe. A big fire whenever we want it. If we don't like the air in one place, we go where it is sweeter. It is true that from the treetops we can see far indeed, my friend, Ogodai said. And a life on the road is filled with pleasures. But think how much farther a seed on the wind sees. For a seed has endless potential. Toulouse stepped forward, crossing his arms, and the other men fell silent. I am unclean, Toulouse said. My hands are blooded a thousand times over, in this world and the next. Reclaiming our motherland isn't just about reclaiming our strength, about power and security. It's for our children. Perhaps we are unclean, but they do not have to be. They can be kings of themselves, rather than the dirty instruments of the yang. Perhaps it's time for someone else to take up your executioner's staff, friend Talu, the man with quiet eyes said. Talu sighed. My soul is already bloody. I will not ask that of another. It is a gift I give my family. The other man regarded him. Yet, it weighs heavy on you, friend. The greatest gifts we can give are the thorns we bear in our own hearts, Talu said that others may never have to bear them. The other man fell silent, thinking on this. Ogodai put his hand on Tolu's shoulder. One day soon, my brother, we will put down our staffs. The quiet leader of the other caravan looked across the faces of his own family, gathering their assent, and then he waited for Ogodai's gaze to return to him. He nodded. We are proud 
to join arms, friend Ogadai. Tell us where to be and when, and we will meet you there. And Ogadai leaned forward and told them. And in this way, dozens of families allied themselves to Ogadai's caravan. And although afterwards each continued on in their own chosen directions, they felt the strength of a great body joining itself around them. And the word spread, and the body grew. Chapter 71 Nor Nezmi's bed was a scrawl of sheets. Do you know? The holies don't carry sacred stones, only in their mouths, Nor said. I know this well, my prince, for I am a temple myself, Nezmi said, smiling. Nor laughed, curling her closer against him. A reflecting board was affixed above her bed, and they looked up at themselves. Nezmi spiraled all around him, like the sacred salt river encircling chalice, an endless serpent, forever departing, returning, blue as night. Nezmi smiled up at his reflection. I use it to paint, she said. Show me your paintings, he said. Only if you promise not to laugh. No, don't promise anything. From the little table beside her bed, she drew out a portfolio of pressed reed pages, and on each one was a self-portrait, a painted Nezmi. Here she was, scarved in sky blue, and wreathed in the mosses he'd sent her. Here she was, naked, dusk-tipped, gazing up. The real Nezmi studied Nor's face, hunting his reaction. Nor caught his breath. She tried to pull the folio away, embarrassed. They're silly, she said. But I love them, Nezmi. She almost relaxed. But then, as he turned the next page, Nezmi quickened. For the next page was of him, standing in the grotto, his shadow flickering between the statues. You were there all along, Nora said. I forgot about that one, Nezmi said thoughtfully. He laughed. You can tell a lie after all, my love. When it suits me, she said, serenely. On the page after that was a painting of the two of them as children, playing in the orchard. You see, Nezmi said, quietly. I love you too. Nor put her folio down gently to one side and held her face, stroking her soft skin. He pressed his forehead to hers. I will remember you like this forever. She smiled ruefully. Nothing is forever, she said. We are, Nor said. And above them, river became mountain, and mountain became river. Afterwards, he loved her even more than before. Yet Nor was in agony at the thought that Nezmi should ever die. That as long as she lived, there would forever be the threat of it, of death taking his Nezmi away when he loved her so. She slept, and he lay watching her breathe, smiling down at her until she seemed deeply asleep, and then Nor gently slipped from their bed. Nor, she said drowsily, her eyes still closed. Do not kill the serpent. <laughs> Nor shook his head, frustrated, smiling. Nezmi rolled over and looked at him. Let it live. 
if that is what you wish. Nora stood at the wash basin, looking out at the dawn. I would only ever do what you wish. She fell silent. Nezmi? But her bed was empty. Nezmi! The princess stood naked in her antechamber. As Nor called out to her, she flung the serpent away from her and turned to Nor with her chest bared. The serpent's bite flowered white and scarlet across Nezmi's skin. What have you done? Nor said. Nezmi! Nezmi, my Nezmi! What have you done? She fell to her knees, and he ran to catch her, knelt cradling her there at the threshold. The dead boy, Bestel, still lay there, his round eyes staring out sightlessly, accusingly. Nor turned away with Nezmi in his lap so she would not have to see the face of death, even as it came for her. She turned her face up to his, trembling, her lips pale. I am sorry, my love. I'm not for this world. I just can't bear it. Not anymore. This is better. She tried to reach up for his face, her hand cold and shaking, and Nor brought it to his lips. You've given me one good thing, she said. Don't go. Nor reached back for the only thing in reach, a decorative horn cup, and threw it at the serpent, which whipped away, thrashing along the wall. Do not leave me. Don't. Nezmi said. Then she was gone. Nor wept. He tore apart Nezmi's quarters until he found the serpent. He beat it until its ribs burst and the head splattered wet across the gleaming floors. He went to Nezmi's portfolio but could not bring himself to touch it. And then he held her again. Warmth came into the room and something began to happen. What was in Nezmi flowed into Noor and did not die, but slept. The thing in him, the stone, which Nor had understood to be himself, resisted this. But Nezmi's goodness, her interconnectedness with all things, began to move like warmth all through him, and as it did, the hooks of stone in Nor's mind began to ease. Then Nor became aware he was no longer alone, he saw a cloak, an elderly man's sandals. We are Rothwell. I will bear witness to this event, Highness, Nor's oligarch said. Nor swallowed up at him. He followed me here. The way he'd raced through the darkness, at a pace nothing could possibly follow without his realizing it. The death of the Catling, the silent streets of Chalice, for a moment Nor saw it understood it all before the truth slipped away again like a poisonous seed. But for that moment, he'd seen them. The eyes behind the eyes of Weir Rothwell. He saw them and wondered, What are you? Then Nor's habits of mind returned, and Nezmi's glimmering in him slept. His oligarch went down on one knee into the snake's blood. Nezmi's body sagged in Nor's arms her long hair whispering against the floor. He could almost release her. 
For now he knew what he held was not Nejmi anymore. Almost, but not yet. One day, you will be king, my sovereign, the Weir Rothbar said. And it is my pleasure to serve you. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to hear a little extra bonus story for free, please visit eveningskingdom.com and click subscribe. Not only will you receive a quick little automated email when each new episode is up, I have some free Halloween vibes content coming up soon, exclusively for email subscribers only. I have some plans for it, so I can't post it on the podcast, but I can send it out automatically to everyone on my email list. The first is an edgy, erotic short story I wrote a while back called A Never Sees. If you've been following me since a previous incarnation, you might recognize it as the story formerly known as Stalker. Anyway... Since it is my sacred duty to start bringing you all those great Halloween vibes as we approach the best holiday, my favorite holiday, shall I give you a tiny taste? The Never Sees by Paula Schmidt It is in the brain that the poppy is red, that the apple is odorous, that the skylark sings, Oscar Wilde. The night I met death, he thought he was just passing through. I can close my eyes and still see it all, as if we were in a snow globe, floating above the wheat fields all around us. From behind the bar, moonlight pooled under the Grand Maraschino Hotel's carpet, tinted green by the stained glass windows. Those beautiful old windows didn't keep any warmth in, but they kept time in place, trapping it cold. I was young, but I felt like I'd spent my life working in that room. Those dark, intricate bar shelves carved by lonesome German farmers, I'd oiled them so often that the feeling still enters my dreams. The way their ridges met my fingertips beneath the oil-damp rag. White globe lights... Empty mirrors, old men. You would have loved it, Robert. Lingering there with me. Scrolling your hand across the bar in the melted ice from your drink, telling me your stories. The shine of colored glass was like a wet garden behind us. And though the hotel could scarcely afford to keep the heat on, my regulars, all travelers, stayed with me by the hour and spooling their secrets. Up. Down, rocks dirty or diamond, I knew how to craft plush, listening silences, and exactly when to set off their jokes with a rattling spoon. They loved me. I poured like an angel. And of course, they all knew why I stayed on in the small town of Maraschino, Kansas. Although I was the youngest there, by decades. I was its lightkeeper. (laughs) 
So, subscribe via Evening's Kingdom and hold onto your hats. When the Never Sees is ready, it will magically appear in your email inbox. Personally, for Halloween, I am vibing out already. I love Halloween with all the neo-noir, atmospheric horror stuff. I'm going to rewatch all of Guillermo del Toro, and I'm already savoring just the thought of revisiting Only Lovers Left Alive and Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I'm going to reread Carmilla, of course. Interview with a Vampire was the book that made me realize I wanted to be a writer. Well, that and Lolita. Seventh, eighth grade. I was already writing at that point. I just didn't realize what was wrong with me yet. If somehow you haven't read Interview with a Vampire, you should probably drop your entire life for a second and pick it up. Lyrically, gothically delicious. When you're craving those rainy night, red wine and candlelight feels, it's absinthe, lightning and velvet and everything nice. I'm sure she wrote it with a scratchy pen on creamy paper by candlelight. I hope so. Also, I'm in Christie's closet in a very cool apartment building in downtown Denver, and somebody in the background is banging. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, I had a wonderful birthday. A really quiet, sweet day, wandering alongside a creek with my love, and then we went out for a truly fabulous old-world Sicilian dinner with my dear friend Jamie and her lovely sweetheart Joey. If you happen to be in Denver, it's called The Odyssey. We had such a nice time. Candles and wine, red sauce, you know. I'm so blessed by the women in my life. My friends, my mother, my mother-in-law, my sister Julia and Psychodelicious Lex, whose magical Virgo day happens to be this morning, the day I'm recording, September 5th, my grandmothers Sybil and Pauline. When Uma's mother tells her she will always be her baby, but now she must be strong. Once upon a few years ago, after we lost our first baby in the second trimester, and my love and I were really, really struggling, my mom and I haven't lived in the same city for most of my adult life, and we were talking on the phone. It was one of those bad days, and I was really bereft. And she said that to me with so much love, that I'd always be her baby, but now I had to be strong. Uh, it meant a lot to me. She was there for me utterly, but we have to walk through the fire alone. And my nana, Pauline, my mom's mother, who I'm named for, she has Alzheimer's, and I knew when my mom said that to me, she was thinking of her mother, how much she misses her, even though, of course, in some ways, Nana is still very much right here. I miss her, too. It's hard. Our mothers, we all lose our mothers. Bukowski has a line, What matters most is how well you walk through the fire. Some things show up on the page truly out of nowhere. You make yourself an antenna, and you try to stay healthy. You keep showing up. You do the work. Who knows where it's coming from? And that's the most amazing feeling, being stepped through. But other things are born from fire. If you've lost a little one, a thought that helped me. Jamie said this to me, that at least he only ever knew love. You know, I lost him, but he only ever knew love. Anyway, this was my first really good, almost at peace with reality birthday. 
and a lot of it is thanks to you guys. I've been dragging this kingdom around in me alone for way too long, and now that perhaps Evening's kingdom has intoxicated you too, I am very happy. Thank you so much for listening. This is Paula Schmidt. Please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and stay tuned. The rest of the story is just down the road. And mom, I love you so much. Thank you for always being there for me.